Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, it's a very special episode. It's our 150th episode, 150 episodes. And I have a very special guest on the show, Tanya Breyer. Many of you will recognize Tanya Breyer from CNBC. She's someone I've known for a few years. I always love my conversations with her and exchanging notes. And today we're going to do something a little bit different than usual. So I normally interview my guests, but today Tanya is going to be interviewing me. And we're going to try to flesh out a few of those insights and key trends and, uh, and things we've discovered over the last three years of the Do One Better podcast and 150 interviews with remarkable thought leaders. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. So Tanya, I'll pass it over to you. You're the expert on interviews. <laughs> Alberto, I think you're doing a pretty good job yourself. <laughs> I'm learning from you. I'm learning from you. <laughs> if only. Well, Alberto, as you said in the introduction, we've known each other and it's been such a pleasure to get to know you and, of course, to talk to you about Do One Better podcast, which is something that you've created yourself and I've just been so impressed by. I remember when we talked about it. I remember when you told me this is something that you wanted to do. And I remember 150 episodes ago when you said, Tanya, I'm doing it. And here, <laughs> and here we are. And here we are, 150 of these episodes. Many congratulations, first Thank and foremost, you. Alberto. I just want to ask you, we're going to take some stock now. Tell me about its history. Why did you want to start it? Tell me about some of the extraordinary guests so far. And also, let's look ahead to who you would like on your podcast, because I'm sure everyone wants to do it. I know they do. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, well, look, I mean, the journey's been one that uh, has really surprised me. I I knew that it's something I wanted to do. So I, I always have uh, really great conversations with people, as you, as you know firsthand. I love learning from individuals, and I've been very fortunate in life that because of what I've done for a living here or there, I've been able to have really great one-on-one -on -one conversations with remarkable thought leaders, remarkable people who are doing great things. And I always thought, look, that's how I'm learning a great deal about life and about philanthropy and sustainability. But that's good for me. What about the general audience, the broad audience, people who maybe wouldn't have access to these sort of conversations or maybe wouldn't even be inclined to have these conversations because they're not as, perhaps not as gregarious as I'm, I might be. So that was the rationale for the podcast. And it, it has been a much steeper learning curve than I expected. I 
didn't know how to edit a sound file. I didn't know how to distribute a podcast. I didn't know how to host it and all of these things. And so that's how we, um, we ended up where, where we are today. Well, let's go back to where your interest in philanthropy came from, Alberto. Tell me about that and your passion to make a difference. Yeah, so great question, Tanya. The, um, it, it wasn't a highly prescriptive journey. So I did business studies at university and went into the private sector and was in finance, dealing with high net worth clients in capital introduction. And gradually those conversations started getting into, well, could we have a social return in conjunction with a financial return? And what might that look like? And I guess you could say that was sort of social investing or impact investing at its very nascent stages. But that's how I sort of started gravitating towards the world of philanthropy. And, uh, and then en ended up with some great or working with some great organizations like the Duke of Edinburgh's Award and Novak Djokovic and, and all of these things. But that's how I got into it. And I think in hindsight, now that I take stock of things a little bit, perhaps it wasn't such a a fluke or so much to serendipity because my parents were very involved in philanthropy and the whole ethos of volunteering and giving was always instilled in us my brother and, and me and um and so maybe it wasn't a, an entire coincidence that i ended up where i am here and actually my brother's also doing great work in philanthropy so maybe it's not a coincidence but that was the journey and do you remember your own first act of philanthropy alberto Mm. You've talked about your parents being a great influence. They gave that to you and your brother. So I remember, um, well, I remember going to some fundraisers when I was very little where my parents were taking me to these. But actually, the first thing I ever did that you could say philanthropy or charitable was volunteering at a local hospital where I was growing up in the U.S. So I did a lot of volunteering, and that was the first um, foray into the not-for-profit space. And then uh, at university, I worked with the, with the alumni and development office uh, at the London School of Economics. I really enjoyed that. And those were the sort of first flavors that, I've, uh, that I savored in, in the not-for-profit world, as it were. Well, then you started your career, as you said, private sector. How much of a focus was there on impact investing at the time? So impact investing at the time wasn't really a thing uh, as, as a term. It hadn't really gotten to the, into the, the jargon that we see today. But I think there were individuals who were very much interested in combining uh, incentives and, uh, and pools of capital that possibly wouldn't normally be playing together, but thinking how can we think creatively about not just having a financial return, but doing something that's actually going to be favorable to the people who are stakeholders who are being impacted by this. So irrespective of the terminology and even impact itself can be sort of like a loaded term, but I think people wanted to make a difference and they knew that if they have capital, they, they could make a difference. It's changed so much now, Alberta, hasn't it? I mean, ESG is the word for any corporates, for all the banks. How have you seen it change over the years from where you're sitting? I mean, ESG itself, it's a, it's a term that not so long ago would have been alien to most people listening. And yet today we don't feel like we need to explain what those letters stand for. Um, that's, that's one change right there. And also, obviously, over the last three years where we launched the podcast, uh, episode one, the notion of a pandemic was an entirely alien concept. There, there was no such thing. Uh, so... So that, that's a, obviously a, a development. And then the whole net zero bit as well, which again, yes, climate has, has been important for a long time. But if we think about the last two years, uh, within that ESG, you could argue that E 
is the most pronounced letter where the env the environmental components are really all the rage these days. Everybody's talking about net zero. Before we talk more about the pandemic and how that's impacted philanthropy, ESG, and what your guests have been talking about, because obviously that's been a huge focus, Alberto, I want to take you from your private sector to then working in the philanthropic centre for others. You've you mentioned Duke of Edinburgh's International Ward Foundation, Head of Development at Trinity College, Cambridge University. And then, of course, you became the global CEO of the Novak Djokovic Foundation. How did that happen? Yeah, interesting journey. And I guess the one thing I would say is that whatever I do in life is based on things that I find interesting that I think are going to do good. And so I'm not always quite sure exactly how it'll play out and what what good will look like, what that positive externality would look like. But I'm just confident that if we sort of position things in the right way and, and try to push in the right the right direction that things will will happen the uh, the duke of edinburgh's award was a great uh, experience uh, looking at informal education young people 14 to 24 year olds in when i was there over 100 and i think about 140 countries so i love that and then with novak when the opportunity arose uh, they were looking for a chief executive officer uh, and you know Different conversations happened, everything unfolded very favorably, and there we are, uh, working for, for an amazing foundation doing incredible work in early childhood development and early childhood education. And needless to say, if you're remotely interested in tennis, obviously working with, uh, with the, the number one tennis player uh, on the men's tennis player on the planet. <laughs> of course, you work with him, had a very close relationship with him. What do you think pushes uh, athletes and leaders to give back? Is there an expectation that they should be doing that? I mean, I think there is an expectation, but I don't think that that's necessarily what drives people. And actually, even if we look at the landscape of remarkable, high-profile individuals today, not everybody is equally as engaged in the world of philanthropy and social good as, uh, as the next person. And uh, and the key drivers are, are usually, from my experience, very personal things. So what is it that influenced that person? Was there a particular hardship, experience, uh, family uh, instance that, that triggers something? And obviously, uh, I know from, from hearing so much and, and learning so much about Novak and, and his personal experience, it wasn't always an easy childhood. And I think that uh, that wish to improve the world was, was ingrained early on. And, uh, and, you know, more power to him and to, and to everyone who's doing the work there. And how do you advise them, him, let's say, on where to start early on? And what were some of the biggest challenges you encountered in setting up the foundation? Yeah, so without referencing him specifically, but if I'm advising a philanthropist, I, you know, I always say, look, first do your research. That's a very important thing. And understand yourself exactly what are the things that are driving you. Is there a specific thematic area? Do you care about education or gender equity? Or what are these sort of things? And the better you understand yourself, the better off you will be for developing a strong foundation. The next piece, obviously, do the research. And... Uh, and start small. I mean, there's no there's no need to go full in and, and, and put all the chips in. You know, start small, see what works, what doesn't, calibrate, recalibrate, and move forward gradually, and hopefully build those long-term relationships with people that, uh, that develop in substance, and, uh, and you're making a difference, bigger and bigger, for long-term. 
And what are the day-to-day practicalities that you encountered as the CEO? So as a CEO, you need to drill in and drill out a lot. You know, it's not one of these things that you just think you're going to show up at, at, at uh, nine o'clock in the morning and you know exactly how things are going to play out. I think that was one of those things that I really enjoyed, but I can see that it's not for everybody. But I love the, the I always used to tell the team, you need to have a healthy appetite for ambiguity. If you think you, you know, if you want a job where you're going to know exactly what's going to happen on the third Thursday of March 2022, you're probably in the wrong place. If you're happy taking a little bit of ambiguity and you want to have the right attitude for doing things that are going to change people's lives, then this is really the place for you. And th- and I love that excitement that you didn't always know exactly how things were going to play out or what you were even going to do. And a lot of the time, things developed as a unintended consequence of a chance encounter where you exchange notes with people and then uh, you realize that there are some dots to be connected. And that's, um, I love that. Do you think it's useful for foundations to partner together? Would you like to see more of that? I definitely would. I think that's one of those key trends in the world of philanthropy right now, the the whole notion of collaborating. Uh, You know, people used to talk about collaboration well beyond, you know, much earlier than three years ago. There was a lot of that. But I think a lot of it was a sense of uh, the facade. You know, I, I need to talk about collaboration because I need to be perceived as being collaborative. I couldn't be anything, I couldn't be perceived anything else. Uh, because people wouldn't look favorably on me. Now I think things have changed where people genuinely want to collaborate. There's an appreciation that the challenges ahead of us are so big that you necessarily need to collaborate. So it's not just about the optics, but actually it's about these mechanisms coming to the fore. uh, And these mechanisms are really becoming much more sophisticated. So there's this collaboration that's not only happening, uh, but it's happening in a very creative and sophisticated, increasingly sophisticated manner. Going back to your time with uh, Novak mm-hmm. and their foundation, Alberta, what are some of the proudest moments for you? What do you remember? So I, the first thing I would say is that I love the team. I always loved growing that team, and I'm still in touch with them, and, and I think it's a remarkable outfit. The, uh, the foundation itself really focusing on, on building schools, uh, delivering really high-quality teacher training, and trying to you know, improve the body of knowledge around early childhood. And those things uh, were done in, in abundance. And, and I can't tell you how, how proud I am of, of all of that. The, uh, the organization had so many really great projects and also great partnerships. So they worked closely with the World Bank for the, uh, for the Early Wins for Lifelong Returns uh, partnership and also with UNICEF and with Harvard University. And each one of these is a story on its own, but they were all um, truly impactful relationships that that really enhanced the world for early years and not just for those those little ones but also for the families and the parents um and there's one program that they they had at the time which i think is still running called support not perfection which is really about encouraging new parents to um to learn from each other and to support each other and uh and to appreciate that there's no such thing as perfection that you just got to try your best no no parent is perfect uh, but if you follow a few basic things, you, you can become a good parent. And um, I love that. And as, as a dad of two, two young uh, children myself, I, I think I, I, was a, I became a better dad because of, of being a CEO at the Novak Djokovic Foundation. And I think I was a better CEO because I was a dad. So, Yeah. 
Not long after stepping down as global CEO of the Foundation Alberto, you then decided to say, right, I'm going to do my podcast. I'm going to do one better. And you certainly have done one better. We've talked about it. But I just want to know those early days. What, you know, what was it like? And when you had the idea, listen, a lot of people have ideas, to, but actually put it into fruition is very different. Yes, 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 yes. And, uh, and <laughs> you and, did it. <laughs> yes, I, I did. Um, the, I, I won't lie to you. I mean, I think there were some days where I thought to myself, what's going on here? I am spending an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out what's the best platform to use to edit software, or how to learn how to do the editing, or how to. So, all of these things, you know, every once you've done it, you know the answers. But before you've done it, you're doing the research and you're benchmarking different options. And you're so protective over this venture and you want it to be absolutely great. And if you're anything like me, you might be a little bit of a, you know, you you might really do a little bit of paralysis through analysis because you really want to make sure you got all the angles covered. And um, and it was difficult at times, but I sort of, I knew that the, the, the foundation was right. I knew that I would enjoy having these conversations with remarkable thought leaders that I'd be good at it. I, I know I'm good at conversations and that uh, I'd learn from it because I learned from each single episode I do. And uh, so that kept me going. And it this, the learning curve was steeper than I was expecting and it took me longer to get things off the ground. But once we got going, it really improved and it improves now. Even now, every day, it's just much more streamlined. And um, it's like, yeah, let's do it. You know, Sometimes I'm doing two interview, interviews a day. And wow. uh, and if yeah. and if and if required, I will turn that interview around within twenty four hours. You know, if it's a very pressing issue. Wow! Gosh, congratulations, Alberta. And what advice would you say to um, up and coming podcasters for those that want to create a podcast but they're hesitant? Absolutely, and I hear this all the time. And I think do it. I think you should definitely do it. the 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 field is getting crowded, so there's no even. Three years ago when I launched, it was already sort of, yeah, people are talking about podcasts. It wasn't such an alien thing. Now it just seems like everybody's launching a podcast here or there. So you better have something that's going to be a little bit different. Uh, but uh, but if you really believe in the topic and you are doing it for the right reasons, then I say do it. And, uh, and if you have questions, the best way to learn isn't through a book, but it's by approaching a podcaster who's doing stuff. And actually, over the last three years, I've worked with some really big uh, nonprofit organizations, NGOs, helping them to create and produce their own podcast miniseries, uh, particular fields of education and, and uh, childhood development. But it's, uh, it's been very rewarding for me, and I think people should do it. It's, um, it can be intimidating, but it's uh, certainly not um, an insurmountable hurdle. And I think go for it, absolutely. What do you think you've learned yourself having experienced 150 episodes so far? What has surprised you the most? I think that uh, I've become a better interviewer and you sort of, re <laughs> as you probably appreciate this yourself, if I listen to the first episodes, very different than, than, than what's happening now. I've, uh, I've learned to understand people a little bit better and to detect when they're feeling a little bit uneasy about things. 
because part of my job is to make sure that the you know if they're going to come on the show it's because they're doing something really interesting and if they're doing something really interesting that i believe in then i want to make sure that i lift them up that i showcase their work in the very best light possible and that means that i need to reassure them that uh that even though they have a microphone in front of them, that we're just having a coffee and we're just having a chat and that I want to learn about their work. And so those that's really important. Um, and you can tell when people are a little bit uneasy, but there's also ways of, of trying to put that, uh, you know, address that and getting the best out. And so some of the best compliments I've had, I know Craig Silverstein, for instance, he was the Google's first ever employee. And he and his wife, Mary, were on the show a while back. And, you know, he's a billionaire philanthropist right now. And towards the very end of the show, he paid me a really nice compliment. He said, you know, Alberto, I do a lot of podcasts, uh, but you really, you, you know, you, you, you do it very well and you do it in, in, a, in a nice style. And I thought that was great. I'm paraphrasing, but along those lines, when somebody tells me that I that they like my interview style, that means a lot. Well, that's always wonderful to hear, isn't it? To have such positive feedback. And I'm sure all your guests feel the same way, by the way. Alberto. Okay, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of guests, you've had some incredible ones. How do you choose them? I mean, I'm looking at names like Paul Polman, Asaya Khaleesi, David Lynch, Julia Gillard, David Miliband, Cherie Blair, Richard Lagos, ex-president of Chile. I mean, it goes on and on and on. All these incredible thought leaders. How do you choose them? Yeah, I wish I could say to you, oh, yes, whoever I choose, I just put my name on it, send an email, and that's done. I think it, it becomes <laughs> We'd all easy. like to have that. Exactly, as you, know, as you know. I mean, you and I have worked on, on getting some good interviews lined up. Um, it's just a question of, you know, a combination of things. You, you got to find somebody who's doing interesting stuff and that I personally find are remarkable. And then you got to hope that if you reach out to them, that that things are going to resonate and that they're going to say, yes, that Do One Better podcast sounds really interesting. I I don't always go by what I think the listeners are going to go for in terms of volume. And by that, I mean, there are interviews I've done where I've done them with people who I thought would be great, but I also thought it may not resonate with everybody. Uh, but I do it because I think I'm doing a service and I think this subject matter needs to be addressed and I'm going to flesh it out and I'm going to bring it out and we're going to have that conversation. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The more interviews you do, the more people you have on the show and the happier, uh, the, the more people you have who have had a very pleasant experience on the show, the easier it is to get other people. And you realize, you know, when whenever I reach out to somebody these days, if their communications people start doing a little bit of uh, research and listen to the previous episodes, they, they know that it's not a gotcha podcast. You know, it's yeah. not about trying to throw you off your game. It's mm. about lifting you up and being supportive of you. And so that makes it easier to get people on board. But people like Julia Gillard, a remarkable individual, first woman prime minister of Australia. Sia uh, Khaleesi, you mentioned, and you know, you and I both have connection to South Africa. Uh, he's the first captain, first black captain of the Springboks, uh, South Africa's national rugby team. Remarkable story as well. Uh, Paul Pullman, pretty much I, in my eyes, the, the leader, the leader in, in the corporate world with regards to the sustainability agenda. So there's been quite a few of firsts, I guess you could say. And uh, it's just got to be individuals that, 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 that have that magic and that I think are just doing great stuff. And that's how it happens. You've mentioned uh, those particular guests, Alberto. Who or what initiative has inspired you or moved you the most so far? Oh, that is a really good one. I see you've done this before. 
I mean, if you look at Sia, Sia Khaleesi, for instance, though, mm. I mean, the foundation, they're doing some really amazing work on gender-based violence in South Africa. And uh, it's, uh, you know, his wife, Rachel's very involved. His wife, Rachel, was also on the show. Uh, and there's a few other remarkable people there. But what I found really, spect I was expecting to have a good conversation with, with Sia Khaleesi, but I wasn't expecting it to be that good. And I wasn't expecting it to touch me as much as it did. And his experience, his, his personal experience, having grown up in the most adverse conditions you could imagine in South Africa, with very, you know, exposed to violence, uh, you know, the women in his, in, in his family experiencing violence firsthand, and him being able to go from that into a role model that's not just a role model on the uh, you know in, in rugby terms but uh for for a society you know and enriching the social fabric in a society something like that is just remarkable and it doesn't have to be you have a lot of people doing great things in sports and life but that was remarkable that was remarkable alberta have you been surprised by the success of do one better and how do you feel about it um i have been surprised to some extent i i, I certainly i never looked you know in 2019 when i was thinking about launching us I, I didn't think that i was going to be up here 150 episodes later uh having a chat with you about this and having and being able to look back at the at the people who've been on the show and the list of names that you sort of you know just casually put there uh, on air. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting that. I just thought, look, I know a few people in philanthropy. Let me have a few conversations with them and see where that goes. Uh, so I have been very pleasantly surprised and also very heartened because it means that the, you know, the, the podcast is about philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. And it's about informing people. It's about enthusing people. It's about calling to action. And the, the feedback that I've had from really so many different corners of the planet have been just tremendous and very encouraging because it tells me that I'm not the only guy thinking about this. There's loads of people who, who, who can benefit from, from using this as a, as a reference point, as a source of inspiration. So I, I love it. We talked earlier about the pandemic. How has that impacted what you're talking about with your guests? It's uh, it's been so initially it didn't exist as a topic in early 2019 and really it wasn't until early 2020 that it became a key topic. It has transformed philanthropy. It has transformed philanthropy. Make no mistake about that. Mm -hmm. I, I think movements like uh, trust based philanthropy, where there's a shift to um, appreciating the needs of your grantees, generally in the global south, and doing away with some of these restrictions. And, and empowering them to do great things um, with a bit of guidance, perhaps, is, is something that materialized to a great extent because of the pandemic. Uh, the world of education has been radically altered, kids being out of school, um, girls being out of school. And many of these kids will ne never go back to school. Uh, so that is something that has changed the discourse around SDG 4, Sustainable Development Goal 4, education and, and and what's the impact of that and it's uh and it's driven people to to behave differently you know whether it's about remote working and all of these things we read about um but also things like collaboration have become much more pronounced uh, and urgent because of the pandemic and the opportunity 
And you probably heard the term building back better, build back better. That was a term that never existed before. And now uh, in 2020, it was, I remember when I had the first conversation where somebody said to me, build back better. And from then on, it's almost like as if somebody read the same memo. Everybody was talking about that. Uh, and the pandemic is responsible for all these things. I do think, obviously, the hardship imposed on our world is, is devastating. There are incredible opportunities, though, going forward in a post-pandemic reality, not just to build back better, as the term might say, but genuinely to make a difference and identify new opportunities. Um, well, Alberto, I'm talking to you on your 150th episode of your podcast. How many more do you want to do? And who's on your hit list for the future? Great, 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 great question. The uh, The way I look at it as a reference point for the future is I always think about 2030, which is that year for the Sustainable Development Goals. I'd love to be a situation where we're in 2030 and we're celebrating the 500th episode of the Do One Better podcast. And not only are we celebrating that, but we're also celebrating the resounding success of achieving the Sustainable Development Goals. If we were able to do that and have that conversation, and arguably, Tanya, if you're the one interviewing me in that future date, <laughs> I would be ecstatic. I would be over the moon if, if we could do that. And um, and people who I'd love to have on the show, it's uh, th there are quite a few individuals, uh, but Justin Trudeau, a Canadian Prime Minister, is really someone who's great, who... Uh, who, who would be wonderful to have on the show. But the, the, there's a quite a big list, and sometimes I don't want to jinx it. I just think if I mention it, you know, I don't know. Uh, but I'm working on a lot of people, and I'm feeling quite optimistic that, that, um, that we'll have them on the show. Well, Alberto, it's been such a great pleasure to talk to you on the 150th episode of your podcast. You do one better. You'll continue to keep doing one better. And we'll continue to listening to do one better. Ah, Tanya, you know, amazing. Well, thank you so very much for really, I, you don't know how many times I've watched the remarkable interviews you do with, uh, wow. <laughs> with well, you know, everybody uh, on CNBC. And I've always enjoyed uh, watching the interviews you do. And I appreciate this, this opportunity to flesh out some of the insights from my conversations with remarkable folks. It's, um, it's, sometimes it's easier to get that content out to a broader public if you have an experienced interviewer like you prompting you and probing you to get the very best out. Well, it's been my pleasure and happy 150th birthday for your podcast. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very, very much for tuning in to the Do One Better podcast. As always, 150 episodes. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. For information about 150 interviews with remarkable people and a great deal of insight on so many different topics in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. And I'll catch you next week. <laughs>